Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome the talents behind the Oscar-nominated films Turning Red and The Flying Sailor. Hi, everyone. The Squiggly Animation Podcast. The first of 2023. My word. It's great to see all you people. I'm imagining you all, and you're all very photogenic in my mind's eye. Gorgeous. Uh, this is Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ben. We're back, enticed, of course, by the lure of a certain glorious, not at all antiquated, nor arbitrary celebration of cinematic worth. So you've not you've not been won over by the uh, the uh, buoyed by the tremendous success of the Oscars, Ben. Uh, you know, as much as I've been disdainful of the Oscars in the past, I genuinely never anticipated that we'd reach a point where the best thing we could say about it was at least no one got hurt. <laughs> I obviously don't stay up to watch them, but uh, yeah, I saw it one. Eh. All right. I'm always more interested in kind of like outside of the realm of animation what the general public think is sort of good cinema or uh, elevated cerebral cinema. Mm -hmm. Historically, I'm, I'm a lot worse at sort of predicting that. I was really kind of surprised to see the degree to which uh, everything, everywhere, all at once was so embraced by the Oscars this year. I figured it would be probably issuing for like best VFX, mm. which it didn't win. But there was nothing about the other categories. It was like, oh, yeah, no, that was the film that stood out. It was a great, it was a fun film. I liked it a lot. It was, you know, yeah. it was a clusterfuck, but it had a kind of, I like the little animatronic raccoon. Yeah. You know, <laughs> my heart isn't made of stone. Uh, and I thought it was funny, you know, but it's interesting how, like, I, w I think that maybe like five years ago, the Oscars might have looked down their nose at that. And now they're kind of like more in a mode of like, oh, no, this will be a celebration of our quirkiness. We, uh, we've got personality. No real surprises with the animation categories. Basically, I think everyone... I mean, the reader's poll predicted exactly what would win. Yeah. I, I guess that reflects what they wanted to win, because that's how we set up the poll. It's not what do, you, what do you think will win, it's what do you think deserves to win. And the squiggly readers voted for Pinocchio and the boy, the mole, the fox, the horse, the crocodile, the anteater, the house, the mouse, the cat, the mat, etc. And, uh, well... That's exactly what happened. So we have a very uh, present mm -hmm. audience. Mm -hmm. Muzzle off, everyone. It's taken years, but finally, you, you, you've got the game. <laughs> There's no secret that I, I think Pinocchio, like no one's going to complain about that winning of the Oscar. Like I liked that film probably the most of the films I saw last year. I didn't see all the films last year. I haven't actually still yet seen Turning Red. But that was the one I actually thought was probably one of the more interesting films to come out of Disney Pixar of like, oh, maybe this should win an Oscar kind of thing because it's got, you know, it deals with this and it talks about this and this is actually pretty, you know, as slightly sad as it is that it's the year we're in now that we're only just kind of doing this with Disney films. I quite appreciated the themes of it. So, of course, that's the time Disney doesn't win an Oscar. <laughs> but, all right, not quite ready for that yet. I have not seen any uh, footage of Guillermo uh, accepting the Oscar or being interviewed about the Oscar. Uh, I hope he remembered to mention that animation is not a children's medium. It's a legitimate. 
And I literally, like, in last episode, I, I brought up, hey, that was, I really appreciate that you make that point because, you know, so few people in the public eye do. I remain grateful of the sentiment and that people in his position of his prominence are saying it, and I'm sure he is saying it with the best intentions, but I, I've always been of the mindset that a good point is best made once. Why have we done 200 E podcasts then? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Pinocchio. Um, I'm pretty sure most people were were more or less happy yeah, with that. I, I, I think it's good. I also think that obviously it's good having somebody like Guillermo say that. And although you know we're hanging on his every word, and we're a bit like, oh yeah, yeah, we get it, we get it, great. For years, all we've had is our mates on Twitter <laughs> saying that and getting mad, and people looking at us and going. Shut up. Just keep making your goofy shit and just shut up. <laughs> like when yeah. we want kid stuff, we'll come to you. And when we want an argument about what's good and what's not good, we'll go somewhere else. But <laughs> that's that's literally it's having something like Guillermo del Toro, who is very well respected by those, you know, people in live action uh, spheres and cinema spheres to go. You know, this animation is the thing. He has to repeat it because people don't listen the first time, the second time, the third time. I mean, we, we, we do this, you know, we, we have this conversation a lot about the fact that it's always and animation. And this is something that we kind of detest at the festival is it's always like live action, games, VR and animation. Yeah. I say, like, give over. Come on. It's, it's, you know, you put animation first. Because it's alphabetical, <laughs> yeah. but that's just where we are. It's it's a shame, but it'll take, you know, hopefully a lot more Guillermo's in the world will start whinging, and a lot more, you know, people with the money will listen and go, oh, that Pinocchio made a few quid, or that, you know, this this did well. We might might invest in animation. I'm, I'm you know, I'm glad he got to say it at the, you know, the top of the, he got to the top of the table and said it. So uh, let's see what happens. The other contenders weren't to be sniffed at. Uh, we mentioned Turning Red, um, also uh, Sea Beast and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, uh, both mm. of which I hear generally quite positive things about. Both fantastic, yeah. I saw um, I saw Puss in Boots recently, and um, it. <laughs> I, I, I turned around to somebody the other day and said something along the lines of, it, "I can see why you know I can see why people call it the best film of the Shrek franchise." Mm. And then I realised what I said. <laughs> like, like, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a, it's not that, it's not a challenging race, is it? It's not. You know, they were given the opportunity to blow the dust off some character and and play in this kind of fairy tale world. The humans are still fuck ugly. <laughs> you know, they've not they've not advanced since two thousand and one. They've gone. Could could we? You know, we've redesigned the look of Puss in Boots. We tried to make it look like a Renaissance painting. It's all very, you know, there's lots of you know, two D sketched over the top. We've we've really made, you know, the lighting's perfect. The colours brilliant. It's a real, you know, joyous thing to look at. Should we redesign the human characters? Nah, <laughs> nope. Let's just make them all look like the baby from the Tin Toy Pixar film. If it ain't keep, broke, keep all those ugly, ugly faces. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's going to tell me that. Oh, they did redesign it, and it took them four hundred hours, and da 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 da. But yeah, I saw what I saw. They didn't do it good enough. Yeah. The only other film I did see uh, was Marcel the Shell with shoes on. 
Mm. I liked that. I thought that was... Um, I sort of liked it in, in spite of myself a bit, and we'll, we'll go into this in a minute. Uh, <laughs> but there's a certain slight uh, uh, resistance I have toward uh, sentimentality by committee. And Marcel the Shell with shoes on the original short was, to me, a little bit of that. Like, I, I, I knew a lot of people who loved it. It was super mm. viral. Like, you know, there are people in my life who are like, oh, this is just, the, it's just the best thing. It's so, it just warms your heart. And I'm just like, it, all right. Like in the, in the world of what was happening in viral shorts and animation and indie animation and stuff like that, it didn't seem that special to me. Uh, robot that I am. Uh, I, I'm not an enormous fan of Jenny Slate. I don't wish any ill will toward her but i've just i've never just never been in her you know demographic i guess uh, i don't really know anything about dean other than they i think were a couple and then they weren't but then they made the film anyway i like kirsten lapore a lot mm-hmm. kirsten lapore being the animation director and you may recognize her from uh, not the list of names attached to the film in any coverage of the oscars <laughs> which is is you know Again, something we might circle back to, like it's it, the award is animated feature film. It's a live action animation hybrid film, but it's in the animation category. Why didn't you mention the fucking animator? <laughs> Maybe give him a little chance to shine. Although weirdly, Jenny Slate isn't even in this list, so maybe she maybe just because I guess she wrote it and did the voice or co-wrote it. Um, so it's the director and then a bunch of like, I guess, producers mm-hmm. who glommed on like a shell with shoes on. <laughs> I didn't really feel like it had a, a real chance against some of the others, but I'm sure they were very happy that they were nominated. Uh, I hope it does good things for Kirsten because, you know, she's always been great. I genuinely thought the film worked in on certain levels that, and it reached me, I suppose, in a way that the short film didn't. Probably 90% of it by virtue of having Isabella Rossellini in it. Yeah, yeah. I think she really kind of carried the emotional weight of the film in terms of, you know, this voice that has been through a real ringer of, of pretty, you know, high-class cinema. Some some odd dodgy stuff, too. But, you know, she knows her chips. She's um, It's a voice that I think it's very easy to kind of have wash over you and, and lose these... Suspend disbelief to the point where you actually feel an emotional connection to a fucking shell. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So uh, a shell you know, with a piece of uh, with a couple of Polly Pocket shoes glued onto the bottom of it. Yeah, and those those little touches. It's amazing in the production design. I think were were really gratifying as well. It was, um, yeah, very nicely done. It felt like it had a it had a very limited cinema run here in the UK. I think probably largely in support of the Oscar nomination. So I don't know how many people would have gotten to see it, but it'll be available, I'm sure, in a sort of wider way uh, fairly soon. We did a screening of it uh, as part of our year-round programme at home for Manchester Animation Festival, and we got a good crowd out for it. It was, it was really nice to, to see how it was, uh, how it was put together and, uh, you know, you know on, on screen, see it all, all, uh, all come together. Because it's, it's very... It's it's shot really well as well, and that sounds like damning with with faint praise, but it is it is really nicely done for a little bit of for a googly eye, a shell, and some shoes. Uh, it it's just 
it carries you away, doesn't it? You know, and to kind of put the audience on Marcel's level and to care because a little shell cares is absolutely amazing, isn't it? It's that kind of, you know, power of animation stuff. Because um, if you kind of just waved a shell at the camera and, and, and did a kind of Jenny Slate voice, no one's going to care. But because it's animated, you kind of, you believe in it. You, yeah. you know. Ah, oh, I just, I just, I think it's just absolutely beautiful. Really nice, really nice stuff. Then we have uh, animated short film. And, uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you, you know, we're both pretty in touch with, you know, the landscape of animated short film at any given moment and any given mm-hmm. year. I think for as long as we'll be doing this and for as long as you'll be doing math and we'll be going to festivals, we'll we'll probably have, uh, not uniquely, but, you know, among the general kind of film community, you know, people in our position and, you know, other people who were very big in festivals and uh, this type of media coverage will have a much wider lens when it comes to what is going on in animated shorts. And... A couple of films in here I think are really good. Like, I would genuinely say that Flying Sailor I thought was great. Ice Merchants I thought was great. An Ostrich Told Me the World is Fake and I Think I Believe It was a quite good student film. Hmm. It struck me as sort of a conspicuous inclusion because, like, it wouldn't have even been the best student film of the past year. And the premise is a very overdone premise. It's been overdone for, for many years of, you know, the stop-motion puppet becoming aware Wait, I, I, I'm a puppet? Say so, what? And then all of a sudden, wider shot, and there's people working on the animation. It's like, yeah, I've, I've seen that film eight times. Yeah. You know? And they're two in the same year, one year at Annecy, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, and also like Anomalisa kind of, that was the shot I think that premise got mm-hmm. as far as like penetrating a mainstream, you know, film area. Of like you know oh it's a stop motion film and at a point the, the guy's like face kind of comes off because he's a puppet how matter it's it's been done it's it's you know uh, so no shade on the kid who made it it was impressive as a student film I have no idea about the production circumstances of the university but if this is one of those universities where this kid really had to like slog through it and overcome you know all of the obstacles that come with stop motion films and with minimal resources it's a nightmare as a student yeah so good for him if that was the case and he'll be oscar nominated the rest of his life yeah yeah so that's that's kind of nice i also really like my year of dicks again but probably quite a lot of films that if you if you're doing an oscar category i would have put above it but i you know i enjoyed that it was a film with the sensibilities that it had i mean it felt more like a tv special hmm but then I guess you could say the same about The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse, which is exactly what it was. So, But My Year of Dicks had, I really liked the kind of vibe and the humor of it. I thought it was slightly ropey on the visuals, but in a way that actually kind of made you think of like old MTV stuff from the 90s. And it wasn't completely alienating. It was just kind of, yeah, it was it was quite a fun watch, I thought. Mm-hmm. So again, yeah, muzzle tough to them for being in the running. So the, the film that won was, uh, of course, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. Um, if you look at the, the tweet from the Academy that says the Oscar for Best Animated Short Film goes to this film, and you go sort of scroll through the replies, and <laughs> the general theme is, Ice Merchants was robbed. Yeah. <laughs> 
Ice Merchants, Ice Merchants. Um, Oscar went where the money is, not even the second or third best of this year. Wow. Um, undeserving, mid-film. Portugal robbed, Ice Merchants robbed. Painful to sit through, worst of the lot. Justice for Ice Merchants, I like the drama of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where where do I sign? Where do I sign this change.org petition, Ben? It's... Uh... <laughs> Plenty of people saying stuff about the boy mole fox horse. You know, gorgeous little movie and book. Congratulations, excellent adaptation. It goes back and forth a bit. <laughs> Did you dare to rob ice merchants and give the award to a self-help book? <laughs> it's not a self-help book. There's no. There's no good advice in it. There's no. It's... Okay, so uh, elephant in the room or mole fox horse in the room. I'm going to preface this by saying. You know, I've been doing this podcast for a, a, a long time now with you, and in spite of a certain cynicism, <laughs> I trot out. In the persona of Ben Mitchell, podcast host, I'm actually quite sentimental, and I'm quite receptive to art that carries an emotional weight to it. You know, I uh, otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have had any response to Marcel, for example. Sometimes it's obvious stuff. Sometimes it's stuff that people would probably be surprised by. Sometimes it's stuff that I'm surprised by. There's an episode of The Simpsons that I find, you know, is, is quite touching. Sorry, um, you can't move on. Which one? The one where he meets his mother for the uh, first time. We thought was dead. Bart gets an F, mate. That's the one. That's if you like. <laughs> same point, though. It's The Simpsons. <laughs> we're, 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 it's a show that's actually moved us to the point of like, oh, I care about this yellow drawing <laughs> of a person. As ludicrous as that sounds, you know, the few lots of stuff that's animated. My life is a courgette. Mary and Max. It's such a beautiful day. Flea. In the world of children's literature, not so much. You know, I don't really remember like kids' books that made me cry or got me in the feels, um, you know, Calvin and Hobbes, which wasn't a book, but it was a, a series. It could be quite thoughtful, but it wasn't this maudlin sentimental strip that the sort of glut of syrupy fan art that's inspired over the years has kind of, you know, led the world to believe it was actually pretty sharp edged, mm. but I could appreciate that children's books and media for children can be incredibly moving and perhaps more to the adults reading them to the children. And, you know, I've mentioned this before, I've been, I was moved by The Little Prince, which I never read as a kid, and my emotional response to it is probably informed by the relationship I had with the woman who gave it to me. But I found it, you know, demonstrably, it's heartfelt, it's very justified as a classic of children's literature, uh, and I probably appreciated it more as an adult than as a kid. And uh, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse did nothing for me and this is no shade by the way on the people who made it who adapted it into an animated film now you can only dress up the source material so much and the source material was where my issue lies mm -hmm. now the whole thing of like oh well, the, an adult would appreciate a, a, a sentimental children's book perhaps more than a child's book i think there are plenty of children's book authors that write books for children you know, they think, oh, what kind of visual would a child respond to? What kind of message would a child respond to? And it's probably going to be quite simplistic, but very effective. Then there are people who write children's books for the adults that are buying them. 
and they write children's books to win awards. And in my completely subjective opinion, I think I, I would not have been moved by this book as a child either. I feel like this is a book that a parent who has known the world, who has grown up and probably been beaten around a bit by the, the shit that beats us around from time to time, and every once in a while we just need a hug or a cup of tea or someone to tell us it's all right. And so read this book, which is a, a it's not a book, it's not a story. It's a no. series of messages to make you feel better. It's a scroll through your mother's Facebook feed. 100%. You could take any line from this book, type it out on a shitty low-res JPEG of a sunset, and post it on Facebook. It would be completely interchangeable. With any- It's yeah. like when Joe Lysett does like fake motivational memes, and they're like, <laughs> they're, it's Poe's law. It's indistinguishable from the actual shit that goes up. Yeah. But that your sad Aunt Gertrude puts up every other day. Like I say, people who made it into an animated film did a pretty good job. I actually don't dislike the drawings. I think they're quite derivative, like the mm. source material. You know, it feels like a kind of amalgamation of various other successful children's book illustrations and motifs and things like that. Kind of reconstituted. But the line work is good. You know, the construction lines are very appealing. If you're an adult who has a certain appreciation for draftsmanship and artistry i think a lot of kids would look at that and think like well it hasn't finished the drawing yet it's not <laughs> it's not colored like kids don't care about like like the the volume and the stroke like they don't really get that yet hmm. so yeah i like peter Benjamin's work love it i think he's great love it his his, his work with benjamin shire the uh, music videos he's done um o- over the years are just absolutely beautiful he's he's a guy who just makes nice stuff he, he's he's the right person for this gig uh what i think they've done in 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 getting peter on board is nothing short of miraculous in terms of mastering a very kind of thin source material into well thin but well loved thin on my from my perspective into something which which is a very viewable film i got i i I, I same as you, Ben. I didn't enjoy the the um, you know overt sentimentality of it. I didn't enjoy being bashed around the head with with just endless uh, instructions to be nice. And I, I, it's something that's galled me for the last few years. If COVID's done one thing, it's done many things. But if COVID has done any kind of weird psychological damage to me, it's that it's turned me even grumpier than I was before because all you hear is and all you see is people saying, be kind, be nice. Come on, let's be nice. No, I want to fucking riot. I've had, I've had the last however many years of just, you know, a maelstrom of shit. Uh, and I just, I just, I want to break things if you don't mind. <laughs> and, 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 and just having a film saying, be kind, be nice. No, <laughs> I don't want to be kind. I don't want to be nice. Um, but anyway, uh, that's me. Uh, 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 I should really be telling this to my therapist and not to, uh, not to you. I'm sure Peter Bainton did the best job with it. And certainly what come, I mean, it's a film. Uh, I liked the way the little mole would waddle about. How about that? (laughs) 
But yeah. the mole lost me with his fifth reference to cake in two minutes. <laughs> like, oh, we get it. You, you like cake. How delightfully quirky. <laughs> so, yeah, some people I appreciate from the response that this film got. They do need this stuff. They, they need a, a something like this to come along every once in a while and mm. say, everything's okay. You're loved. Mm. A lot of people they get those messages throughout their life packaged in the form of the friendships they've made and the bonds that they have formed and the life circumstances that they've, that they've been able to carve out for themselves. And a lot of people I know just are very lonely or struggle a lot. And if a film like this comes along every once in a while and it, it, it gives them a boost or it helps them out, then fine. You know, yeah, good. Not every we are going to respond that not everything is for for us. Not everything is for for the individual, and not everything is for not everything is addressed to you. Not everything is you know addressed to me. It's it's. And I can think of plenty of people who would watch something like "It's Such a Beautiful Day" and be like, "I don't get it. It's a stick man." Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're stupid. They might understand the story and the the heart behind it completely, mm. but they might just because of the visual medium, they might just not be able to connect to it similarly mary and max you know it's, it's great uh stop motion i love the art direction on it i think it's brilliantly made but you know it's a style it's a very specific style adam elliott has both visually and writing style and i think that it's entirely possible that that could alienate some people so for me it's my version of that would be yeah the kind of sentimentality by committee that I kind of mm. mentioned before. That's definitely what the original book and the adapted script for the film felt like. If you took, if it was a silent film and it was done with just an orchestra score over the top, we wouldn't be having this conversation, Ben. We'd be having a completely different conversation about what a masterpiece is because it is well-directed. I'd, I'd have found something to whine about. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... Cell shading or something. <laughs> it, it kind of evokes a kind of, it's very ethereal. It's very kind of, you wonder if the boy is dead because a winged horse comes for him, you know, and he goes up to his village and, and, and doesn't quite go back to them. Is he a ghost? As he, you know, the fox was trapped in a thing. I really kind of got thinking, yeah. Yeah, he's dead. This kid's dead. And, and, you know, the mole buried himself out the ground. Obviously, that's what moles do. But, <laughs> but the fox and, and, and it's just, it, it, it kind of made me think of, 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 you know, it, I, I was, I was playing along with the film and, and reading into it and enjoying it on that level. Um, but yeah. And, and, and for those reasons, I, I kind of, you know, who did make, who made the good bits of this film? And all all fingers point towards Peter Bainton and 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 the work that he's done previously as a director, as a you know, as a, as an animator, as, as as everything else, and which is why I was very uh, you know uh, miffed to see that his name wasn't even on the Oscar. Well, he was co-director, right? He was he was co-director. He wasn't um, assistant director. He wasn't. Um, co-director, uh, uh, you know, when you have a feature film, you have directed by and then co-directors. No, he was one of two directors. 
and yet he he's his name's not on that statuette. I mean, that just like just doesn't make sense. No. So has there been any explanation as to why that is? Well, none that I've been able to sort of find. There simply wouldn't be a film. There wouldn't be a book. There wouldn't be a film without Charlie, but there wouldn't be a film without Peter. And this is something that Charlie's actually said, you know, when he accepted the BAFTA. He said, I'm not an animator. I don't understand it. And I'm so glad that these wonderful people have helped me put this film together. Okay, well, put their name on the award as well then. You know, it's it's, it's not asking for much, is it? Uh, of course, there was an interview with Peter Bainton on the uh, Squiggly website with Charlie and Kara, I believe. So you could learn more about the making of the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse by checking that out. I liked that, you know, you did get something out of it beyond the surface level. I liked your version with ghosts and, and you know, this this kid who's probably going to hell <laughs> and these demons that have come for him. And, uh... Watch it again and tell me if you agree that you think that, you know, it's an allegory for for death and for, for things like that. Obviously, it's and you read the book and there's nothing about that, you know, in the book. It's uh, Books, plural. <laughs> now, this is the thing I admire the most about this, this not-at-all cynical gambit venture that was the adaptation of The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. It was a picture book and they did an animated adaptation of it. Then they made another picture book out of the animation. <laughs> yeah. So next Christmas, I'm really looking forward to the animated adaptation of the new picture book. And then after that, the picture book of the animation adaptation. Basically, when we get like seven, eight in, uh, that I think is when it's really going to find its footing. Yeah. And I'll, I'll probably come around to it as a piece of literature. We've got a, we were given a, 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 a book of the snowman uh, years ago. Uh, I think we were given it, a, I don't know where we were given it. Um, and it was like a kind of, Here's, here's the snowman. I was like, oh, fantastic. It's it's a, it's the snowman. And it was basically just screenshots of, of the film. And I was like, oh, this isn't, this isn't the Raymond Briggs. This isn't the original, you know, this isn't the real deal. Um, as brilliant as the film is, you know, but uh, yeah. And there's that awful, we had to give it away, did we give it away at the Squiggly Quiz? The worst book I, yes, we did give it away at the Squiggly Quiz at Math last year. The worst book we've ever, ever been given. And it's, I think it's The Simpsons Family History. And it is literally just screenshots of the uh, of, from the episodes, uh, including I think include it, it, at one point it actually includes the uh, credit on the bottom of the screen. <laughs> it's that bad. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a real duffer. You want to see a, a real relic? Oh yeah, here we go. <gasps> oh. Ben's slightly blarier in Zoom view, but uh, dug into his vinyl collection to, to to scoop out the Simpsons sing the blues. Remember how the Simpsons loved to sing the blues <laughs> in those classic Simpsons episodes. <laughs> oh, could I forget? It's, it's covered in drawings of the Simpsons that are all just a little bit off model. <laughs> is that original? Is that? Is that? Uh, yeah, it hasn't yet been queued up for a, a deluxe reissue. So is it is it Walter Matthau Homer singing the blues? Is it that old? He's right. He's right on the precipice. Yeah, he's just about to become proper Homer. Wow. Yeah. Oh, not, um, uh, not not a great record. <laughs> <laughs> like musically, not not incredible, but nostalgia wise, it's very satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> you know how um, Mr. Burns and Smithers would occasionally rap together. <laughs> if you don't remember, it's on this record. <laughs> 
Oh, amazing. Loads to look forward to. Uh, I'll, I'll look forward to your uh, your Instagram post of your, your squiggly Sunday listens. <laughs> it's impending. <laughs> Should we be nice about some films? Because, I mean, in the same category, there was some... There were some great films. I mean, let's join our uh, our Portuguese chums and talk about Ice Merchants for a second because, you know, that was one of the films that was really, um, you know, that really had a uh, an, an impact. Uh, you've seen it on the big screen, I take it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and obviously it's, you know, it's a very good film. You can watch it on your computer screen. You can watch it on your phone screen. Uh, but when you see it on the big screen... I, I felt vertigo. I really felt every bit of it, that film. It is a, yeah. it is a really fantastic film. Um, and the, uh, the emotional impact of that film is extremely successful without a word being said. Nobody asks him, you know, what the bravest thing he said is or anything like that. But yeah. it's so impactful. And it's a nice little world that's been created as well. This nice circle, this, you know, the dependence and, and everything else. And, and, uh, it's just a, it's just a, a, a real achievement. I mean, I understand why people do say it was robbed. You know, I mean, mm. that is, it's all sort of a hack line of sort of, because anything that wins an Oscar, you're going to get a bunch of people sort of like crowing, like, oh, yeah, you should have picked one. Yeah. Like. <laughs> but I, 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 I kind of get it. Again, of, of the other nominees, like, I mean, honestly, it did make sense that Boy, Mole, Fox, Horse, etc. did win. Like, it was not, like, a surprise that it won. No. But it was a slight disappointment because it did feel like this one was, it just felt like a, a better contender. Even, you know, The Flying Sailor, which I enjoyed a lot, I could see that kind of alienating a certain mindset that... Um, we know is uh, present in the Oscar voters. Yep. I just think they probably wouldn't have gotten it. Or the ones that did would have been sort of shouted down. I've got a real soft spot for The Flying Sailor. It is a beautiful piece of work as well. Um, and I'm sure that the kids enjoyed the first, like, one minute of the film when it does this sort of really beautiful kind of Looney Tunes uh, take on one of the worst disasters that's ever struck a port, really. Yeah, it's kind of hard because the actual true story that it's based on, and we have talked mm. about this one before. Uh, the actual true story, there's not a lot of info about it. It's sort of it's less a true story and more like an aside someone made. Yeah. So okay, we you have a lot of poetic license to do what you will with that. I enjoyed that aspect of it quite a bit. Oh yeah, he kept his cigarette in his mouth as well. Right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> like like a Viz character. <laughs> so yeah, I mean you know, hey, it's over. We'll, uh, I'm sure it'll uh, outdo itself even more next year. Congratulations to Brendan Fraser. He's back, everyone. <laughs> well done. And all it took was a nutty professor, the clumps fat suit. <laughs> yeah, I'm all, uh, I'm all full of piss and vinegar with uh, Oscar's chatter. What else is going on in the animation uh, universe? With well, there's, 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 there's been news hither. There's been news thither. Um, thither. It's the only way you'd use the word thither. Um And I didn't even use it there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a <laughs> But you took a stab at it, and that's the main. You know what? As long as you're trying, that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, Is that a line from the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse? Because it should be. <laughs> What's the bravest thing you ever said? Thither. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, <laughs> um, well, speaking of kindness, Ben, mm. um, there's been a new initiative, Keep Festive, uh, which has been launched by a, collect- a collective of uh, film festivals. So um, a bunch of uh, uh, international film festivals, distribution uh, companies, etc., have launched Keep Festive, which is an initiative that stands yeah, against yeah, any sort of sexual, sexual harassment. harassment and, and that helps. Yeah. <laughs> Just reading the same article. All right, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm reading these, these fine, fine words that have been put together for us, so why should I try and explain it myself? <laughs> yeah, so basically uh, they've, they've done a good thing to do a good thing. Yes, it's keeping sexual harassment at bay. It's always good to sort of see it actually implemented. My kind of introduction to, I guess, the concept that this stuff even kind of goes on, it was back in the days when I was doing comic conventions, Mm. like sort of trying to sell my wares, and uh, seeing the signs that are up, a lot of signs saying, hey, just because these pretty girls are dressed like Tinkerbell, don't grab their ass. I'm like, there has to be a sign for that? Wow, that was a that was a real kind of education for me, you know, like like because you feel like oh, well, if if any space is gonna be, you know, more safe than say I don't know a tube or a club at a certain time of night, it's gonna be a comic convention, right? It's just a bunch of geeks having fun. Like no, mm. all the creeps are there, probably even more. You know, luckily, I I mean, I I know a lot of people who are very you know um, involved in going to festivals and whatnot, and I I've not heard that many kind of horror stories, but a couple are starting to kind of emerge every once in a while. And a couple of problematic yeah. figures are starting to have um, uh, stories about them, you know, circulated. Of course, to an extent, a lot of it is rumor and innuendo, except when you look back historically, whenever there's been rumor and innuendo, has it ever turned out like to be false? Mm. But of course, festivals aren't immune um, to this kind of stuff as well. So I think that this no. is a great um, a great initiative. Uh, I will follow um, your lead and uh, read a bit more of this article. <laughs> uh, the main idea of Keep Festive is to host a certain number of activities that will help in creating a toolbox for festival organisers and attendees and help prevent any kind of sexual abuse, a code of conduct that members can follow, a training programme for the team and volunteers to make their guests feel more comfortable and safe. So far, the members uh, include people from Tricky Women, Ottawa, Go Short Kaboom, uh, Annie Film, Animafest Zagreb, Annecy. There's a nice big list of festivals that are kind of on board with this. Um, I think this is the beginning of, of something, yeah, quite positive, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, I certainly would hope that it's something that other festivals would be up for kind of integrating into how they do things. I mean, does, as a festival director, does this kind of thing appeal to you? Well, it's, it, you know, it's it's something that we've already got as a festival. You know, we have a, a tackling bullying and harassment policy and, you know, any any kind of, any healthy organisation that deals with, with, you know, the public face-to-face, you have to make sure that you do have something in place. The last thing you want is for something to happen and then not know how to respond correctly uh, and not to have, you know, played through those kind of scenarios in your head and, and to know how to best kind of, comfort that those in need of comfort and to you know seek resolution for those that you know need that when when you go to people just want to go to the cinemas and have fun yeah uh, they want to go and meet people they want to feel like they're in a safe communal environment and for somebody like you know myself and and you know the rest of the Manchester animation festival team putting on an event like math 
we want everybody coming to that festival to feel that exact same thing, to feel like they are part of the community. All it takes is one person to ruin that night and they will ruin, you know, it, it, it could ruin a lot, you know, uh, ruin somebody's life. And we don't want, we don't want to have, uh, given the, uh, the opportunity for somebody to be in a position where, uh, where they can, you know, abuse trust. Absolutely. It's, it's simple, you know. It's not something I have really ever brought up, and it's not because it's sort of, I think because it feels sort of kind of inappropriate to even bring it up when you're basically me. When you're the me's of the world, it, it, it feels less sort of valid. But thinking about it, the one time I was actually sexually harassed that I can think of in recent memory, it was at an animation festival. Mm. And it's obviously a very different kind of thing where on one hand, psychologically, it's an easier thing to just kind of like walk away from and not be too bothered by it. But also there is a physical component of like, well, you know, I can actually fend off this person if they don't get the message. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a guy and it was about yeah, 10 years ago. He tried it on and it was like, oh, no, 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 we're having fun, but, you know, let's just keep it friendly. Uh, then the next night he did it again. And at that point, it's like, hey. Mm. And there was this little bit of, like, shittiness from him. And, and then, he, you know, it, it was it was what it was. Like, I, I didn't really harbor any enormous ill will about it because he struck me as quite a lonely person. But that's the thing. A lot of these people who do this stuff, it comes from a place of, of being a bit desperate and a bit lonely. And I think that one of the interesting things about the stories we kind of hear about when this does sort of happen with men, like people like, you know, and I'm very aware, very aware that I'm no Brendan Fraser or no Terry Crews or things like <laughs> this, but the, the, it's not just a certain type of person that can be targeted by it. Yeah. But it also isn't like symptomatic of something that I've had to endure really ever in any other scenario. Uh, in any other kind of like festival, like it just never happened again. I'm just not, you know, the kind of person that gets hit on in that sort of context. That time I I was, you know. Um, Mm. And I think a lot about stuff like that when things that kind of happen and you just kind of walk them off and then, you know, you look back at little kind of casual things that you sort of feel, oh, well, you know, this is one of those things. And then you think back after some time goes by, I was like, no, that was actually quite fucked up whether it's sort of the way someone behaved toward me in a relationship or uh, something more sort of maliciously motivated, mm. you know, that my sort of reaction in the moment is usually to just be like, what the fuck? But yeah, I, I can't begin to imagine what it's like to have to just fend that shit off on a daily basis, which I, and then the big education of the last sort of, you know, five or six years is just how many people I know do. And the only reason why, we didn't know this is because it just wasn't a thing they could talk about. Mm. Uh, and then, then it causes, you know, I question my own behavior. It's like, Oh God, was I, was it taken a certain way when I said that thing, when I, um, you know, did that thing when we were all drunk and, you know, everyone was having a good time and everyone laughed, but was everyone laughing? And, and I think that's kind of an important thing too, is to sort of reflect a bit on where, you know, we might go wrong ourselves. Mm-hmm. Something I think I've, I've mentioned actually, and it was at a comic convention, not the same one I think where I saw these signs, but 
it was a friend of mine who had like sort of smuggled me in and I got to meet like my hero who was a, a, a genre author that I never thought I'd, I'd get to meet in his lifetime. And I was just over the moon. I was so happy. And she had done such a nice thing for me. And I just hugged her without like thinking. I was just like, thank you so much, hug. And this is a friend of mine, but I had never really kind of thought that she might be someone who didn't want to hug or didn't like being hugged. And I just could tell as soon as I hugged her, like, you know, she just sort of squished right up and was and like, I'm sorry, but, you know, I was just excited. And you know, and she was, and her, the, the thing that really upsets me about that was her response was like, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. I'd like to think that, you know, at the very least, experiences like that should make you more mindful. Okay, I won't do that again. And I don't think I have. What you said is you, you know how to read the room. You know how to you know how to get the situation, and that comes with experience, and that comes with a kind of you know uh, 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 self awareness as well, which which is obviously you know. Yeah, I'd hope so. As you say, you as a festival, you already have measures in place for comportment and things like that. Possibly to an extent, an initiative such as this might be uh, superfluous as far as how a lot of festivals are set up. But I quite like the idea of, of giving it a name, giving it a sense of unity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, fire extinguishers are superfluous until you need them. Exactly. There you go. You know, it's, it's exactly, it's exactly the same thing. You know, you don't need to, you, you don't need to worry about if, if, if something's in place or a toolkit's in place or a, a policy's in place or, or, you know, you have something there. It might be an opportunity for us to kind of, we might feel like we're being shaken out of our cozy, comfy little animation festival world. And it's always good to take stock and think, well, you know, A, it's not for you and B, we need to remember that we are a community and there are some, sometimes there are some people in the community that might need to adjust their behavior accordingly, you know? Yeah. Just accountability. Accountability. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not sure if there is a website for Keep Festive, but uh, there is a contact email for people who want uh, more info. It's contact at keepfestive.org. Fantastic. Let's circle back to the Oscars, because as you know, Steve, I can't get enough of Oscars chatting. <laughs> so we're going to do something a little different in this episode of the podcast and talk to some of the nominees, uh, given that we already did talk to uh, Guillermo del Toro in the last episode of the podcast. And uh, there is an interview with Charlie Maxey and Peter Bainton and Cara Spella uh, up on the site for the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse. So uh, we've kind of got the winners covered. But we really like some of the films that were nominated, as we have been discussing. So uh, we thought we would bring on some interviews that we have in the chamber with some of the filmmakers behind those. I guess to kick off with, why don't we have a chat with Amanda Forbes and Wendy Tilby, mm. the directors behind The Flying Sailor. And honestly, just people I, I've been quite keen to have on the podcast. Uh, we didn't, when I initially interviewed them, it was for Annecy uh, when the film was playing there. I think it's as good an excuse as any to uh, revisit that interview, uh, given their recent Oscar nomination, and very well deserved it is, too. Uh, the main reason, I think, that I kind of wanted to include this particular filmmaking team, as well as this film, which is great, but their body of work in general is, is quite tremendous. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of you will be familiar with the film When the Day Breaks, just a really, really kind of incredible process. And one of those films I remember just really scratching my head, like, how the hell is this was this made? 
And they go into quite a lot of detail about that and their older sort of processes and their general kind of body of work leading up to uh, this film and also some of their commercial work and how their processes were kind of interwoven uh, with what clients wanted and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a very satisfying chat and a, a lovely pair of filmmakers. Yeah, When the Day Breaks is one of those films which uh, there, there are a select number of films, aren't they, which uh, usually around the 80s, 90s that really get rammed down your throat when you're at university. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're, you're screening these particular films um, and there's a reason and it's simply because they're just brilliant. But uh, even, you know, when the, when the day breaks is just this, you know, fantastic thing to watch and to, to see unfold on screen. I like wildlife. I really, really dug wildlife when it came out. I think it came out in a year where, where all the, um, animated, uh, uh, shorts were kind of released on, on iTunes or something. Uh, and you could, you could see them all. Um, uh, again, that wasn't, that was once again nominated. I think they've had three nominations now, haven't they, in a row? So, um, um, uh, yeah, uh, but wildlife was just great, and it's it's this guy in the in the Canadian wilderness, and he's just this this guy with too much money, basically, and it's it's done sort of like an interview, sort of like you know, it, uh, it's it's painted beautifully and just ah, oh, I just I really really love that film. Um, it might even yeah, I don't want to say it's very difficult to pick a favorite out of uh, out of there their back catalogue, but I nearly said it, didn't I? I nearly said it might be my favourite. <laughs> well, I think that one sort of narratively is is quite clear-cut, and there's a certain, like, sort of charm and humour, even though it is quite tragic. Mm. But, there, yeah, there's something almost gentleman pirate about the character. Mm. A certain sort of, I think they were called remittance men. People who, you know, more money than sense, trying to kind of turn... Uh, an idea they have into a reality and then their reality ends up being they're doomed <laughs> quite distinct from the other films visually i think that's something that they were always generally sort of good at was pushing themselves into new corners of filmmaking uh, again something that i think is demonstrated with the flying sailor and they've actually been posting you know a few kind of like early concepts for how they would approach uh, or wanted to approach the animation. I think initially the character, the main character, was going to be CG. You have a bit of sort of mixed media going on in this film. There's a bit of CG at the beginning with the boats and stuff like that. Yeah. But done in a really nice way. It's, it's just a, a really nice kind of mini spectacle. I do like the work, what they do with it. it. Like you say, it is a film which has come about from uh, from a line, from a simple line uh, of text. And they as filmmakers have got into that line and, and wondered who this sailor was because there's not no information on this person, what his life must have been like. And they play with this moment and they really kind of exaggerate it and stretch it narratively into this, this voyage across time and space, the universe, life, death, joy, misery. It's all in there while this sailor just plummets through the air it's it, it is it's everything that's everything that's magic about animation absolutely see we can be sentimental too yeah 
Wonderful. Well, yes, let's hear from Amanda Forbes and Wendy Tilby discussing their work and career and their recently Oscar-nominated short film, The Flying Sailor. I gather you both met at university, is that right? Yeah, it, it, it was a college then. It was the Emily oh. Carr College of Art and Design and is now a university. That was probably about 1985. Something like that, yeah. Were you both uh, studying animation? Uh, yeah, I, I, we sort of, um, Wendy was in her last year in the, anim- you were actually officially in animation, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we both landed at art school having been at university before that. And we, I think we both went there sort of more interested in live action filmmaking and fell into animation Yeah. Uh, while there. So it was sort of a little bit of a haphazard thing uh you started in that super eight class i think yeah so so uh wendy when we met wendy was in her fourth year doing her her graduation film uh tables of content and i was in second year live action with a you know little side gig in in animation and that's how how we met and became friends but but we were both attracted to animation probably for the same reasons of um avoiding the kind of the the shoots of, of live action, the kind of standing around the hierarchical nature of it, the uh, dilution of the creative process and animation being kind of a solitary, you get to control everything um, was more appealing. And, and we both had an art background, so it kind of came naturally yeah. to, to get into animation. So it, it happened that my graduating film was animated and so was yours, I guess, or one of them. One of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah just the, uh, like Wendy says, the dilution, the dilution in live action, you know, where you go out on set and there's all that standing around and then these like concentrated moments where you're getting the shot, whereas this way you're sort of always engaged with the shot in, in animation. And, you, you know, you'd just be more likely to get what you wanted, it seemed, seemed to me. I, I realized how naive that was then, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> or now, but that's what it seemed like then. Because it's so much work. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned about the solitary aspect there, and um, of course you've been making films together, but did you not initially? Were you more kind of like doing your own projects to begin with? Well, uh, at art school, because we were in different years, um, we weren't working together, although Amanda helped on my student film A little bit. Uh, at the end there. And but it wasn't until a few years later that we actually um, got together to make When the Day Breaks in Montreal. Yeah, a number, number of years. Uh, yeah, later. so it was, um, so, and we each had made our own films. I had made strings at the film board in Montreal, and Amanda had worked on a project in Vancouver. Yeah, um, we, I mean, we, so Wendy's film was Paint on Glass and mine was, I, I was doing animation direction for an educational film in Van, it, NFB in Vancouver. And mine was, it was a cutout film. And so they have a very similar, you know, I had a crew to make the cutouts, but then it was. The process is necessarily solid. Yeah, yeah me yeah, and the yeah, camera, yeah. which is the same as Wendy, when, you know, where you're just yeah. very isolated, concentrated, uh, just you and the camera. Yeah. So, so when the day breaks was our first collaboration, then we've collaborated ever since. So, and that was also NFB. Yeah. Yeah. So, did that project kind of come along from having worked with them previously on strings? 
Yeah, I was in Montreal. Amanda was in Vancouver at that time. And I had made strings. And then a while after strings, I was sort of mucking around trying to figure out what my next project would, would be. And it eventually evolved into when the day breaks. But I was quite sure I didn't want to work under the camera again. And um, I was developing the idea. The story was clear to me, but the how to execute it went through a lot of different uh, um, agony. Is that the agonies or yeah, yeah, <laughs> trial trials and errors. But uh, and uh, Amanda was uh, finishing up her project, and because we were kind of so simpatico in our sensibilities and our senses of humor. Um, uh, she came to Montreal and it sort of evolved from there. And we kind of developed uh, this, um, the technique that we ultimately used. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a relief for both of us to not be working under the camera, which even though, um, I mean, the solitary aspect of it is still very appealing. Um, there's something about the, it's so seat of the pants in a way. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was, it was and not very, it's hard to collaborate working under the camera. And so this was a way that we could both uh, work on it with this, you know, with, if you, if you've seen when the day breaks, I mean, we use video and we, but each, each frame is hand painted, which is appealing to both of us because we like doing that. I think, I think, you know, when I think about under the camera, work I feel really nostalgic about it yeah but it may be in the same way that I feel nostalgic about uh, Steenbeck's Steenbeck's <laughs> and actual celluloid and cutting celluloid that I'm very nostalgic about it but if asked do you want to go back I think I'd say no maybe cut it I don't know yeah I mean cutouts are appealing but I, yeah it's, it's hard to go back from the digital what the digital world has brought us in terms of flexibility but um, but we also acknowledge that it's a bottomless pit of possibility. And as I'm sure you know, you know, one, yeah. one thing about working under the camera is that it keeps you in check. You can um, you have to keep moving forward, whether mistakes are made or not. And the mistakes have to be pretty bad for you to do it all over again. With the computer, it's like you can endlessly fix things. Get back and in it's, there. Yeah. 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 So it's double edged sword, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. I'd love to kind of get into that technical side of things a bit more with When the Day Breaks. It is a really interesting end result, what's sort of achieved by it in that kind of sense of movement and everything. So when you say video, then is it essentially kind of like a type of rotoscoping? Well, it so what, what we did just to go from beginning to end was we, we would shoot um, live, live action on a, on a home video recorder. And uh, we might add uh, a beak or something, you know, so uh, we each acted the ch chicken and the pig and we'd go out in the street and cross the street, that kind of thing. Totally embarrass ourselves. Very embarrassing. Because yeah, yeah. they, they were terrible looking props. They looked like they'd been made by a six-year-old. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then we'd bring it back in and we would use this fantastic, uh, at the time, you know, frame by frame on video was, was almost impossible, except on these really expensive, fancy three-quarter inch decks. So we transferred to the three-quarter deck and then you could scroll through the frames, frame by frame, and, it, and, um, and without the scan lines and all that kind of stuff. 
And then from there, we would print out select frames to a video printer, which was a you know box about this big with thermal paper in it. That uh, usually used in medicine for ultrasounds, that sort of thing. Yeah, that medical imaging. So it it produced a black and white image, and uh, from there, and it was sort of had a fairly good grayscale on it. So then from there, we would photocopy those selected frames, number them, photocopy them. And they would come out in strips. It was almost like film strips, but strips of video. Yeah. We can send you some images of what that looked like, yeah. you know, of how we drew on those. And they were much more high, high contrast and they were, uh, the paper had some tooth to it. That, that thermal paper had no tooth, so you couldn't, draw right on them. I'm glad we didn't too, because they, they degrade with age really badly. So then we would draw on those and, um, and paint, paint on them and, and kind of uh, really estimate the, the positions of the characters because they never conformed exactly, you know, the body movements would be what, what was laid out, but the head shape and, and movement of the head, we always have to kind of estimate as we went through the Ooh, shots. Yeah, register by eye, really. Register by eye, yeah. yeah. And then we shot them also registering by eye. Practically, the registration system was difficult. You just line up the edges of the frame, and they weren't always 100% consistent because, you know, photocopies squash and stretch. So, um, yeah, that's and then, and then shoot them under the, under the rostrum camera. And then other parts of the film did not use video at all. They were just sort of... Sometimes they use still images or there was just drawings um, like going through the pipes and wires sections was done differently. That was animated. So so it was only the character stuff um, that was used with this video. And uh, it was kind of fun because it was, you had something to draw on top of. So it was, you would take this kind of, let's say this chicken is on the street and you could, um, we would draw in all of the elements that we wanted to add, like a beak and the hat and everything. And we would paint out what we didn't want. So it was, um, it was just, it was sort of fun because it was free form in a way. It was kind of, it was very loose in a satisfying way. Except for those occasions yeah. when you're desperately trying to boil a toaster. No, well, that was bad. <laughs> yeah. But um paint out something you didn't want from the background because there were often times when we had not shot under absolutely ideal circumstances. And so you put layer and layer and layer of paint on it, never quite obscure it. That, yeah, that was really yeah. frustrating. But back to the whole thing of selecting images uh, that, that, you know, we were very careful not to, to rotoscope in those sort of classic understanding of the word and that you just, you know, frame by frame, because you, you, you know how rotoscoping went, uh, looks soupy often there's a it has this kind of i don't know it's usually too slow when you animate it yeah Yeah, and just too like there's there's no crispness to it usually it feels very lax and so we sped things up and made put in holds and with the subway shot we actually took the train coming in and then just repeated it going out again just flipped the shot you know so they're all we pulled all kinds of little tricks to make the movement a little more interesting we always described it as um, almost like reverse pixelation. If you were doing a pixelated film, you would take a camera and shoot somebody and you would just take certain frames with your camera. We would just do that, but after the fact, after it was shot you know, by a process of selection. 
So it was, it was, it was fun. It was labor intensive as really it always is, but we were kind of making it up as we went along, but, um, but those, those paintings are about that big. They're, they're at most four inches wide, which was essential because they were very fussy, very, very fussy to paint. Uh, and they, actually the, I think the, the shot that really got us excited was um, we took um, a shot from that film, Ed Wood, that uh, has Johnny Depp and Martin Landau in it. And Martin Landau is playing Bella Lugosi. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. Oh, yeah. But you know how fantastic he is, is Bella Lugosi. And so there was a shot of him coming out of a cafe or something and walking down the street. So we just turned him into the chicken just did a quick test turning him into the chicken. And that's when I, f- I remember that was a really exciting moment because yeah, yeah. it was cool. And, but the other thing that was interesting about it was that his performance came through, you know, you could really see the the vividness of that character, even though we turned him into a chicken I and mean, we put chicken feet on him and everything. And he was still, he was still there. It was very interesting. Were you able to actually kind of see, as far as how you were shooting it, would you be able to kind of look back at, you know, an hour or a day's work and see how things were going? Or did you have to kind of wait for things to be kind of sent off? Oh, we had a video testing system where we could check things out along the way. That would have been ghastly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we would, yeah, we would video test. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I guess we did do that before we would, once everything was painted, we would shoot it on film under a rostrum camera and that would be several days before we saw that a few days it would but it would be processed at the film board which had a lab at that time and but the we could see what yeah we could yeah we were testing in advance of that but we wouldn't really see the full full painted yeah the full effect till it came back from the lab yeah of course when it was done enormously well received film and uh, I imagine generated quite a lot of exposure. What effect would you say did that have on what you ended up doing next? Um, well, one thing it did was, which is kind of interesting when you talk about technique, was um, it generated some interest within the advertising world, which we've kind of had, we have one foot in the advertising world as well. So we've done quite a few ads. But what was interesting was that um, uh, not long after finishing When the Day Breaks, um, we did a campaign with United Airlines where they said, and they weren't the first to say this, we want the When the Day Breaks technique. And we would go, oh. Yeah, we you know, and we and they and it took us four years. Yeah, we can't, I know. We can't. And it was sort of interesting how advertising, it's an insight into how the world of advertising is always um stealing from pillaging pillaging from the (laughs) more art world and so we were asked to pillage our own work in that way but but the funny thing was was in um describing our technique as we just did to you it was that the key part of it was was that we were turning humans into animals and that's what made this sort of quasi rotoscope technique for us um that's what made it work. It made it interesting. If we were just turning them into humans, another kind of human, it was not interesting, not as interesting anyway. So, but for United Airlines, they wanted humans, but in this technique, and we were not only did 
did they not understand the kind of how labor intensive it is for such a short schedule? Which well, we, they didn't care. But they didn't care because you just, <laughs> you know, but you have to find people who can paint in the same way very quickly. But we, did, we really didn't want to do the human thing, but we ended up doing it. And um, I don't know if you might have seen it. We can send you a link to it, but it's, it's a little bit gruesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, but in it, but it did spawn um, a few other ads with United Airlines. That, that they were we, great. They were we, great we gigs. It was, you know, those sweet, happy days of advertising where yeah. they paid you and fed you and fussed over you. It was fabulous. <laughs> we did another one for Earthlink, which was also in that technique. And anyway, so it's sort of a, a funny, a funny thing, but it, and it also with the film board, it certainly enabled us to make our next film, which was wildlife. So, you know, having a successful film is, it certainly oh God, gives, it one, so gives one opportunities. Um, but I, I think yeah. uh, in terms of how it affected the creation of wildlife, other than as, a, as creating that opportunity, was one thing was that we decided to use language because, um, you know, the burden of language-less storytelling is considerable, you know, to get your ideas across. So we quite enjoyed. We also wanted to change. We wanted yeah, to, yeah, yeah, we always want to change. Uh, but we really enjoyed using language and writing the stuff and having the characters speak and working with actors and doing the lip sync. That was that mm -hmm. was really fun, actually. Yeah. So that was one major change. And we always want to change techniques. So um, that was a given. I, you know, one thing that carried over from <clears throat> when the day breaks into wildlife is uh, the the using of real media because the wildlife, in, at least in our minds, was kind of this tipping point between, you know, analog and digital uh, rendering, and we struggled so hard to find something that we that we would be happy to do in the computer, and uh, it just wasn't there. I, you know, the brushes weren't there, our our abilities weren't there, and so we retreated back to um, to real media. We, used, we animated digitally yeah. for wildlife, but but ended up hand painting it all in gouache on paper. Ah. So was it scanned in then? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 We would, we would animate in flash and then print out all of the images with registration marks, paint everything um, and then scan it all back in, which was is kind of crazy. You know, we would, we wouldn't do that now just because it makes no sense. And the, the digital tools are so much better now, but um, but I mean, there, you can't you can't even now re uh, replicate the real paint. There's something yeah. about it, you know, it's, as you would know. Yeah, and you know, it just occurred to me too that there's this other incredible advantage when we were working on when the day breaks. We would get a whole bunch of the work prepared, and then we would go out to our friend's country place and stay there for a week and just paint in the country, just us and paintings, and no computers are to be seen, you know, and now, even though we have much more creative freedom, we're, we're tied to these, you know, two screen giant computers that have to, you know, you don't want to haul them all over the place when you're on holidays. Mm -hmm. It's good. It's that's a big trade off. Yeah. Also with the, uh, the sort of shift, I suppose, from the previous film, it's ostensibly kind of more of a comedic film, uh, wildlife, because it takes a turn, you know, as it goes. Uh, toward the end, but there's all this sort of wonderful kind of character business and the sort of know, affectionately hopeless guy and his, you know, endeavor that's uh, sort of doomed from the outset. And had that been something, I guess you wanted to sort of maybe 
do a bit more of something a bit more in the kind of more explicitly comedic? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I mean, it, you know, the, the subject matter really lent itself to that because, you know, the history of those uh, remit- remittance men, as they were known, is really funny, you know, and then it has this tragic end where they, most of them went off to the first world war and never came back. But, um, you know, they, they just brought this incredible color to this very, very dire, hard landscape full of, you know, people who are just like white knuckling it out on the prairies and they come and they play polo and they fart around and, they're just just in right to their fathers for more money. I mean, it's inherently quite funny, you know. Mm. Um, we've always wanted to. Well, it's not even conscious, but we naturally seem to want to mix uh, uh, tragedy and comedy, or you know, it's just it's more intentional I mean, when, now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when the day breaks, um, even though it's uh, I wouldn't well, you could call it tra- tragic, but it but it's. Um, it, you know, it has a, bl- a blend, like it's not um, super, super dark. And I think the same with the flying sailor. It's just, that's just naturally what comes out of us. I mean, we, it's hard for us to do something completely without humor. Yeah. Um, why bother? I, but, but, uh, but I, but it's, but I wouldn't describe it as light either. The, the films, they're not. Um, we, we, we just hope that, that to hit that sweet spot of making him, a ridiculous character, but also sympathetic that you liked him, even though he Mm. was ridiculous. You know, we didn't want to have you write him off as an upper class twit and feel nothing for him. Then, then the film's kind of lost. So that was a delicate little balance. And I guess with the flying sailor and as it sort of gets going, the note that comes on screen is based on a true story and that kind of, you know, pricks your attention a bit. To what I mean, was this actually something that that happened, and more or less how it plays out in the film, or is it kind of a, a take on it? Well, we don't know how it actually <laughs> how the real story happened. Which, exactly is sort of, which is sort of the point of our film was to kind of fill in the the gap of and make make up obviously the trip, but but the 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 premise is true, and if you if you if you caught the thing at the end um, that we dedicated it to this, um, the story of a sailor named uh, Charlie Mayers, who, and, and all we know about him is just really a paragraph that's been written about him because he's just one of many people in that terrible event. But the Halifax explosion, which you may not have heard of before this, is that something you've, you knew about? I hadn't, no. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's a like Canadians know about it, but it's we don't only just recently. Yeah, but we don't expect the uh, um, rest of the world to know. But it uh, it that what that really happened. I mean, two ships collided in the harbor in 1917, and one of them was loaded with um, explosives. That's it was, absolutely it, it was, actually it was pretty accurate, yeah. and it is exactly as ridiculous as as it happened in yeah. in mm-hmm. our film. And it was a you know a total freak accident of yeah. one was in the wrong lane, and um, I mean we could have milked that whole scene a lot more, but we just wanted to get to the real meat of the movie for us, which is the flight. But but a sailor was there on the docks, and he um, was in the blast, and he landed, you know, naked two kilometers from where he started. And 
and lived and uh, ended up going back to Manchester. And so we don't know the extent of his injuries, but it, they were couldn't have been nice. relatively minor that he, but so we were at a museum in um, Halifax many years ago and we saw, and this, the whole exhibit was dedicated to the explosion, which absolutely devastated the city. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, horrible, horrible stories. I mean, it, it was the, it was the biggest uh, man-made blast before the atomic bomb. And it would, uh, the, the stories are incredible. So but, it killed 2000 yeah, people yeah. instantly. Yeah. And then many more after that, which they didn't properly record. So they, the actual toll is not really known. Yeah. And there was like a tsunami of debris. And I mean, it's, it's remarkable that he avoided getting killed by just the flying debris alone, but he landed kind of uphill in a park, in a park. And that probably is what saved him. But we, when we saw this little write up about him, we were intrigued, like what, um, what would that have been like? And it, and it was um, near death experiences are really quite fascinating in how much they all have in common, and, you know, about time slowing down and the senses sharpening and, um, white light review of your life uh all these things yeah. sense of peace and calm and bliss at the end a dilemma whether to go back to your you know, to your body or to die you know i mean the, the, those things are quite universal in a way and so we wanted to um capture those things but just sort of we were just intrigued by combining the this horror of his situation with the beauty of kind of his flight. And, you know, we thought of it almost like a, a ballet that he, he would be up there. He would rise above the, this mayhem and be in this and rise towards a kind of calm and bliss. And that there was sort of, it was just sort of so beautiful to think of this um, pink naked <laughs> sailor up there amongst all this debris and um, just the, the idea of slowing that down, we, we, we found it funny and quite moving at the same time as a, just as a notion. And then there's sort of the violence of his return to earth. And, um, and people do often report, like if, if, if say somebody's on a, a surgical table um, hovering between life and death, and they often report, you know, I had, I saw my dead mother and she was beckoning me or, and, but I realized I wasn't ready to go. I had unfinished business. And then there's this feeling of being yanked back into their bodies. And it's definitely the less attractive choice at that moment because they're so peaceful and blissful and pain-free. And then going back to life is actually much harder than death. And he's going back into hell. Yeah. Basically, he's, you know, it's hellish that what he wakes up in. Post-explosion uh, horror, but, but he's alive, you know, so... It, you but know, the, is that a happy ending? I don't know. But. The actual guy, uh, the, his statement said that he didn't remember anything of the trip, that, but that he, when he woke up, or if, I guess he did wake up. He was next to a baby, for one thing, uh, who was also alive, and, um, and he was wet. He was all wet. So that was his memory of the trip. That's the actual thing that happened. He also was in his 20s. He was just a young guy. And we turned him into a middle-aged guy because that's how we roll these days. <laughs> <laughs>
the character design does kind of bring to mind some of the character work in wildlife, but overall it's a very kind of distinct film in its visual approach, you know, looking back at the other two. And that's its own kind of mixed media approaches, I feel, are kind of unique to this, like with the boats and uh, some of the kind of post effects and things like that. Actually, quite a lot of stuff sort of interwoven, especially as it's kind of going through things and you get like flashbacks. And it, would this film, I guess, be your kind of embracing the digital side of things a bit more than um, you had done previously? Yeah. I, well, for one thing, that it, it just was not feasible for us to blow down a city into the animation. That just wasn't going to happen. And we really wanted to show the city from his point of view, even if yeah. just a little bit, like that was Im mm. important. And if we were to draw that by hand with all the perspective yeah, changes would have been uh, beyond us. And, you know, we're, yeah. we're technically, we're not, we're not those animators, you know, we're not those people who can just say, yeah, I'll, I'll get that. I'll get that going. You know, I, I that would kill me to be calculating the perspective change and the blowing down, just one blowing down house and a perspective change would kill me. I mean, it was extremely hard to do it the way we did it too. Yeah. Which, mm. but, but so we, we well, go ahead. So we, yeah. we'll be, we, you know, you know, the 3d aesthetic has been historically such a dodgy proposition where it's only really now kind of showing its potential, you know, and uh, we knew that with our limited, ex well, limited experience, no experience with it, that, uh, and, and uh, you know, we wanted a small crew and that was all that would be available to us with our budget. We knew that it had to be simple, you know, that, that, that it couldn't be super sophisticated. So we purposely went for what we hoped was kind of a, a model train aesthetic, you know, so that it, shapes are simple looks like hopefully looks like they're carved out of wood or something and plopped down on a you know green carpet or something like that but, but yeah so we we enlisted a guy to work with us uh, who knows uh, Maya Billy Dyer yeah, Billy's his name Dyer William Dyer and he so he he would he sculpted um, uh, all these houses and buildings and you know, it kind of, it actually pains us that in the end, because we, uh, because of the perspective and that we ended up blurring things more and, and they're a little bit more distant, we don't actually see the buildings the way we actually, we, well, we wish you could because some of them are really cute and yeah, really it's, it's great town. looking. Like we, we sort of yeah. think we've got to think of another film to use this yeah. town in because we built it, but, but he would build all the forms and we kind of designed all the buildings, but he, he would make the shapes and we did the skins, which would be painted in gouache or no, well, digitally in Photoshop. And then they all get wrapped. And um, they, they, they really did look like they were made out of little wood blocks. Um, it was, uh, that was so, fun. So that, that, really that, was, fun. that was really fun. And then, so everything got arranged, you know, telephone poles and, um, all the all these details and the boats and everything like that but our our main fear all the way through was that it was going to look horrible in a digital way that it was going to look like 3d digital horrible <laughs> which we didn't want well, and, which of course yeah. it did for a long time you know when yeah. it's just gray and ugly and, yeah and, and it sort of it wasn't until quite late in the process that we started to 
feel like we we got it and we knew that we could we could cover up a lot of ills and there are a lot of ills um but with with smoke and debris which we did i mean that's sort of why we obscured a lot of it was because you could see um seams and weird things that would happen in 3d it's just it was such a it's such a strange way to work in a way the the we found it frustrating to be so distanced from the like it wasn't tactile in that way but but yet kind of amazing so yeah. and it was really good for us to enter into that world and see how it works and um it yeah i mean it was really good for our our skills not that we well, we learned my like that we learned some yeah, yeah. but the, the the sailor um he he for some reason he was always well because we would have hated him as a 3d character i think but we always wanted him to be a kind of a roughened up uh especially when he's in the air you know the way he just boils like crazy he's you know very his edges are very loose um that was always important to us that he had this kind of roughness to him and it it was it felt important that he be separated from it that that you know he's sort of clearly the subject from beginning to end i think that that's part of why we did mm -hmm. it and that again would have been he would have been uh, very difficult to animate in 2D cuz he's moving so slowly and his you know the changes of his position in the air are so pronounced and so we we did end up animating him in blender and we did that ourselves and then painted over top of that um and getting in, in photoshop in photoshop mm -hmm. to to give him these kinds of uh to give him more of a a looser feel, a more disrupted feel. Thank you, Amanda Forbes and Wendy Tilby, chatting with us there about The Flying Sailor, among their other work. Recently Oscar-nominated, a tremendous film that I believe is currently available to watch online in full via the New Yorker YouTube channel. It doesn't appear to be geolocked. Uh, not sure how long it'll be up for, so why not check it out today? Uh, another film that I think would have very nearly picked up the Oscar, recent film from Disney, Pixar, Turning Red, which, uh, generally speaking, is, you know, as I said before, one of the more interesting premises for a film to come out of that camp in, uh, in recent years. Definitely. And certainly on the list, it would have been my, it would have been definitely been my second choice. I had lots of fun watching this and I have not had a lot of fun watching Pixar films recently. Um, I think mm. there's been a lot of, a lot of reliance on the audience to kind of aggrandize the films without the films themselves having m as much to them as they used to have. I'm not saying that the gimmick has worn thin, but you know, the films weren't about the gimmicks. The good films aren't about the gimmicks. It's about the relationships. And I think that the relationships have kind of really fall, fallen short recently in some of the films. Uh, whereas this film is all about relationship. It's all about the mother-daughter. Uh, it's all about the kind of uh, the clash of cultures. It's all about um, growing up. It's it's marvellous. Um, there was the... Uh, I saw a, quite a number of people add Inside Out to the kind of sight and sound poll. Lots of people, when they were putting down a Pixar film, they put Inside Out. Mm. I don't get that. I really don't. I don't think it's... Yeah. It's not even the director's best film. Uh, it's certainly not Pixar's best film. But this could be, for me, I just think it's absolutely marvellous. Uh, the the way that it's 
you know, for years, Pixar films have only been directed by blokes, really. Yeah. And and it's shown. Let's be honest. It's very obvious that um, the the the, the, uh, the films have been directed by ever increasing aging men, and then you get this absolute masterpiece set in early two thousands Toronto from a female perspective. And it's just so fresh and just so uh, just lively and entertaining and brilliant. And I've said before, probably on the podcast, but even though, you know, I'm not a preteen Chinese Canadian girl uh, who can change into a red panda in Toronto, uh, doesn't mean that I can't connect to the character because <laughs> we've all been that, that age. We've all had those friends. We've all, um, you know, if we're lucky enough, um, you know, we've all had that kind of tension in the family. And this film brings all that out and puts it on this kind of colourful, enjoyable, entertaining, exciting platter. Um, yeah. Big fan, Ben. Big fan. Yeah, and I think that being open to these ideas in a film, it just opens you up to just more better interesting films and the criticisms Mm. that i've seen leveled against this they're usually from you know white males (laughs) who are like this doesn't represent me this doesn't represent my lived experience then watch one of the eight fucking billion other films that do (laughs) yeah or is is there really genuinely is there really no appeal in watching a film and and finding a little bit out about someone else's experience exactly and gaining a bit of a wider view of the world yeah limiting was the phrase um (laughs) a tad limiting in its scope um that was a cinema blend in uh, sort of in contrast i do remember about a year ago that one of the reviewers who was you know definitely in its camp and uh, of the various descriptive terms they used to describe it one of them was unapologetically horny (laughs) and the histrionics (laughs) that that incurred from people like how could you possibly sexualize it's like there's nothing wrong with with you know uh, something that addresses the fact that hormones exist if it's going to be targeted toward families and young adults and even children if it's handled properly Mm-hmm. And all sides point to this film being very deftly handled and very well written and very um, sensible and just very charming and very funny as well. So mm-hmm. it's really it has it has really captured something uh, really integral, I think, in, in, in that kind of like you know growing up and being a teenager and everything. And this came across as well. Have you seen the, the trailer for uh, the Teenage Mutant uh, Ninja Turtles movie, Mutant Mayhem? I've uh, seen it, uh, stills of it. Oh, no, no, like no, a- Ben. We need to watch the trailer and you need to listen to the trailer as well. Okay, do um, uh, That's an instruction. <laughs> you will enjoy it. I will say, well, Ninja Turtles did lose me around the time Vanilla Rice showed up. <laughs> um, and the the time travel movie, do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was the the real like nail in the coffin. It's like, okay, I, I, I'm yeah. They did kind of claw me back with a video game last year. That was a lot of fun. It was kind of like a, a a nod to the video games they would have made in like 1990. You know, the old arcade game. Oh, great! Like yeah, it's called Treader's Revenge. Really original <laughs> title, but uh, genuinely a really uh, fun, well made game. I was uh, really surprised by it. 
Right, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. From Seth Rogen. Okay, not a great start. <laughs> but let's see, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. So it's immediately the best, like, looking Ninja Turtles film I can think of, like, that's been made, like, in my adulthood. Absolutely. There's been a lot of variation over the years, you know, and we, um, I remember when we had the guy who did, like, the last show on, or one of the, a show that came and went between us starting this podcast and now. Yeah. And he was making this show while they um, were making the movies. And the movies and the show visually were so different. It Could you even reconcile the two, you know? Mm-hmm. And it felt like both were kind of going in quite extreme directions away from what the kind of heart of the original was a little bit. Mm-hmm. This is quite different. It's quite distinct, but it's it's definitely, there's a lot of heart in it. I think as well, what I liked about it, you know, talking, uh, comparing it to the sort of uh, turning uh, red uh, teenage angle is that they've always been teenage mutant ninja turtles but they've always acted like they were like 37 i you know the voices and you know uh whenever you see Raphael, is always some sort of like brooding like you know yeah and, and and even as a kid even as a you know as a teenager or whatever i never felt like they were teenagers it never it never struck me that they were teenagers they were always when i was a kid i was watching adults i wasn't watching uh, yes, they said Kamabunga, but that's you know anyone anyone else could say could say that. Whereas this, watching this trailer, it looks like and and even like you know uh, you've got uh, Donatello whose voice hasn't broken yet. Um, that's an interesting touch, like that he's actually like because yeah, a lot of teenagers like they've got left behind a bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was always you always had that one mate who was like. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I like that. That's a nice touch. But but as as well, they're 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 goofy. They're they're gangly. They're they're teenagers, and I think that is 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 really going to. They've looked at all the films in recent years. They've they've and God, you know, people are just going to go. Ah, oh, look, it's slightly different to 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 bland CGI. So it must be Spider Verse style. But no, it's not. It's just textured. It's just mm-hmm. you know. It's just. It's it's lovely. Um, I am um, I'm excited for this. It's probably the frame rate they're picking up on as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's well, it's more Mitchells, isn't it? But you know, um, it's <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Uh, but it, any any frame of this just just looks like a uh, a key painting, doesn't it? It looks like yeah. you know, uh, it, it, it it's got it's got a scribble to it, and I really yeah just. I think it just looks gorgeous. I think it's it's a reasonable comparison, Spider-Verse, in the sense that the thing that a lot of us kind of were clamoring for mm. back in the day when, when Pixar were just shitting out films that looked exactly the same as one another, <laughs> but releasing those really great concept art books of like, and at the same time seeing films that looked, you know, really interesting and by virtue of being short form could come up with some really out-of-the-box visuals and stuff that felt a bit more like this. Yeah. Was that kind of hope that, well, one day they might make films that have that kind of design sensibility to them. And I think Spider-Verse really did lead the charge on that. 
So I, I imagine it's probably it probably did play a role, even though I, I looking at even just the sort of poses going through this sort of frame by frame. You're a hundred percent right. It's more Mitchell's versus the machines in terms of the expressiveness and the eyes and the overall approach to the sort of production design. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it doesn't just look like you know that shit Ninja Turtles CG film that came out twenty years ago. <laughs> like, does anyone remember that? Oh, I was. I had my ticket. I was. I went to see that cinemas. <laughs> I was. It was when I was at university. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember. I didn't, I didn't say I remembered it. I remember going to see it. <laughs> I say I remember the film. Mm. I mean, of course, that was you know where CG was you know oh, yeah. nearly twenty years ago. I mean, yeah, this is something I'd, I'd possibly <laughs> even go and see. Yeah, especially if they they you know have us go see it for free and give us croissants. Yeah, and yeah, we we talked recently with like certain other movie adaptations of things and the completely arbitrary list of celebrities that uh, are attached to them there's there's one of those here yeah but i don't know it seems all right it's like there's some interesting names on here guy from uh, breaking bads in it uh jackie chan why not put jackie chan in a ninja turtles film for christ's sake oh come on please be playing uh splinter uh natasha dimitrio cracks me up i like her a lot yeah and Seth Rogen, Post Malone's in it. Well, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's very nice looking. Yeah, very well done. Yeah, it looks it it it, it looks great. A uh, redemption there for Seth Rogen's uh, uh, sausage party, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> Time will tell. Uh, but yeah, we were, we were talking about uh, uh, turning red. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we were. Well, yeah, uh, back when it came out initially, you chatted with Domi Shi, who was the director, Mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Mm, Correct. And the producer? Yeah, Lindsay Collins and Domi Shi. So we had a good old chat when the film originally came out, yeah. So in a a not especially common occurrence in Squiggly, uh, we have some more time with Domi Shi. Uh, This time Ryan Gore, Squiggly contributor, chatted with her in anticipation of the Oscars. And I just thought it would be nice to get a bit more time with her on the podcast. Yeah. So yeah, here's Ryan Gore talking to Domi Shi, director of Turning Red. I'm delighted to be joined by the director of the BAFTA-nominated and now Oscar-nominated film, Turning Red, Domi Shi. How are you? I am great. Uh, yeah, still processing the nomination this morning for the Oscars. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what was your reaction to the new to the uh, nomination when you first got it? Um, well, I didn't want to wake up early <laughs> to watch it live because I was too nervous. So I slept through the nominations, and then I woke up to a bunch of texts congratulating uh, me and the and the people in the crew. And I was like, "Oh, good, we got it!" Like, like that's my way of of being able to to handle it. I, I, I can't handle like watching it live and like yeah, that anticipation and anxiety um, as they read off the names. So uh, yeah, that's been my thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you all. Even myself watching it, uh, I was waiting for the, the name to pop up and it was the last one they said and it was ripping me apart. So I can't imagine how <laughs> you must have felt. Yeah. Oh man, um, I didn't know it was the last one. That's crazy. I'm so I glad I didn't watch it. I would have freaked out. <laughs> 
<laughs> Does this feel very different from um, campaigning in 2019 with Bao? Um, yeah, it does. I mean, it's the same, but it's different. Uh, you know, uh, with Turning Red, you know, it's a feature film and it's just so much bigger and the audience is bigger and I feel like there's more eyeballs on it, more pressure on the film to, you know, be nominated, to um, be recognized uh, because the studio and like the crew have put so much work behind it. Whereas for Bao, I felt like, you know, it was it was a short film. So in some way, the pressure was like a little bit less. Um, and uh, yeah, it just if and then also too like that was before COVID. And yeah, um, yeah everything just feels so different now after COVID. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that some of that pressure comes from the fact that Turning Red is like an extremely personal story? Sort of. It's more just like um, it's a personal story, but also it's it's a it's a film that has so many firsts. So that's why it has a lot of you know pressure on it. Like it's the first film to be helmed um, by a majority female leadership. It's the first film from Pixar with an Asian uh, female lead. Um, it's the first film. I think like first animated feature film to really deal with, you know, puberty uh, mm -hmm. and, 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 and uh, all of the ugliness and uh, cringiness and awkwardness that, that comes with it. Um, and, uh, but then it's just a relief too, just to see like a film that is so bold and so different embraced by audiences all over the world and now by, you know, members of the Academy and, and, and uh, people within the film community. It just really, um, yeah, it just really shows that, you know, if you take like for studios, if you take chances on these specific films that really celebrate um, different kinds of stories that like they are universal, you know, that a universal mm -hmm. story can look like this and deal with subject matter like this, you know? Yeah, yeah. I loved how you mentioned it being embraced by kind of the wider community, which is definitely mm -hmm. something that's happened. Um, and when we like release art into the world, it takes on a life of its own and mm -hmm. kind of evolves beyond what you ever thought. So I wanted to ask, uh, what's something that audiences have taken from the movie that you didn't expect? Oh, um, so many things. Uh, what I love the most is lurking on Twitter because um, I don't have an account, but looking at all the memes that uh, are created from the movie and how people resonate and connect with the with the film in in different ways, and and there's this one meme that was created where it's um it's that scene where May's under her bed and she's mm -hmm. sketching in her sketchbook, and they turn it into like a three panel comic where you can kind of like like the first panel is her like uh like laughing goofily and then she like draws something and then you reveal what she's drawing and then people have just like taken that panel where where uh you see what's on her sketchbook and they just added their own they add their own embarrassing drawings from middle school <laughs> they add something completely different and you know like like really sp specific to their fandom or, or to what they are embarrassed to like um and they just turn that into like a little 
relatable comic about like, oh yeah, like we've all been there. We've all been underneath our beds sketching <laughs> things in our sketchbooks. So that's that's one of my favorite things to come out of the movie. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that scene particularly it resonated with a lot of people and it's quite true, I feel like to what I know from the documentary about the film, to your experience mm -hmm. of like first time like fan art and things like that. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's kind of a natural extension of this movie, making people making their own fan art of turning red and stuff like that. So would you say it is there has it been a favorite piece of fan art that you've come across from Turning Oh red? man. Uh gosh, there's so many. Um I love uh seeing fan art of oh there's like really creative ones out there like i i saw like fan art comics of um may's mother and her dad and like when they were young and how they met <laughs> it's like super specific i've seen interesting creative fan art where people create their own uh panda sonas like they're their own version of like what their magical red panda would look like and it'd be like a different color and a different design um and then of course all of the super uh you know uh amazing four town fan art uh you know seeing uh people attach themselves to this fictional boy band and get as into them as may and her friends are in the movie is just amazing it's just so cool to see how you know this movie is really like touched everyone's 13 year old nerdy selves in a really fun way <laughs> i think such a success of the movie is kind of like the design of the pandas and being able to differentiate the pandas from each of the um yeah aunties and may and mings all those different pandas so how was that a big challenge for you in the process of making sure they were distinct and matched each character yeah, yeah. I think we work closely with Rona Liu, uh, our production designer, and the art team in making sure that there were characteristics that we carried through from each of the human designs and put them into the panda designs. But we still wanted the pandas to be as pandas. But, you know, like with, um, for Ming's character, for example, May's mother, um, in Act Three, when she transforms into a Godzilla red panda, uh, it, it, that act, that design actually went through a couple of iterations. So the first design that we approved was a much scarier version of of the the of Panda Ming, um, and we and I have, you know my initial instinct for making that for shooting that um that whole sequence at the boy band concert was like oh man we like we just gotta make this feel as scary as possible may is terrified her mom's gonna like wreck everything and can you know kill her 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 favorite boy band <laughs> um and it seemed funnier in my head but then when we watched it with that really scary uh pandeming design uh it didn't read like it it, it read us way too scary and I was losing the metaphor of, oh, this is just an exaggerated mother teen daughter fight in the living room, but like, like on a massive scale, like that was the initial, like, you know, inspiration for, for act three. Uh, so then we went back to the drawing board a little bit and we redesigned Panda Ming um, to give her more characteristics of human Ming. Like we gave her that really funny looking mm -hmm. hair swoop. Uh, we gave her a mole on her eye, and then we also worked with the animators on her behavior. Like, she, like in the in the first past, 
we made uh, the first pass was more of like this animalistic bear kind of like uh uh animation for panda ming and she didn't really feel like a human in there at all like she felt like she was kind of crazy and out of control but then in the second pass um the animators like took a lot of ming's mannerisms like hands Mm -hmm. on her hips finger wagging um just her her overall kind of like sassiness like they, they 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 carried that through too and that really helped her read as like oh she's giant angry mom not giant angry monster um and that really just like gave the entire act three like a different tone like it's still scary and exciting and exhilarating but there's like this mm-hmm. this like funny uh this like humor to it where you you like read it as like oh man like this is like a mom and teen daughter going at it even though they're like a 200 foot tall panda and like a, an eight foot tall panda <laughs> yeah i think that scene definitely strikes that balance really well um mm-hmm. i want to talk about toronto a bit because i've never visited toronto unfortunately but watching this film kind of makes me nostalgic for a place I've never been. So <laughs> could you talk about kind of developing a nostalgic feel for Toronto through like the visuals? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Toronto um, in the 2000s and uh, I thought it'd be a really cool opportunity to set this movie uh, during that time in Toronto. I feel like um, Toronto is always in movies, but it's always disguised as New York or Chicago or another American city. And it's never really celebrated or seen as Toronto. Um, and uh, I just really wanted to take this opportunity to like celebrate just the diversity and the, you know, the, the unique architecture and that like small town in a big city kind of feeling that Toronto has that, I remember growing up um, and uh, I really just wanted to, yeah, just also celebrate the people that I grew up with too. Like I wanted to highlight the Chinatown that me and my parents would like shop at every weekend when we were like, when we first immigrated to Toronto. Cause even though my parents and I are not Cantonese, like that was like the closest thing we had to home, um, like in, like in, in the West. And um and also I just wanted to celebrate like all the diverse um, classmates that I had growing up. Like I was lucky that I lived in Toronto where like I never felt like an other uh, for like being Chinese. Uh, I felt other in that I was a total anime nerd <laughs> and I was like vice president of the anime club. That's how I was other, but I wasn't other for like, you know, who I was, which was nice. Um, and, you know, May's friends, are, de- are definitely like a representation of the types of uh, kids that I hung out with, that I befriended. You know, there's a large Asian population in Toronto, South Asian population uh, as well. And um, yeah, and, and uh, it's funny because we will, will always get comments about like, wow, like you made your movie so diverse. How did you do that? Why did you do that? And I'd be like, well, that's just reality, right? Like, like mm-hmm. that's just what Toronto is. And it's, and a lot of people don't realize that. Um, Cause when they think of Canada, they think of like snow, sure. French, French Canadian lumberjacks and like <laughs> and stuff. But like the Canada that I know is really multicultural and it's really cool that this movie is kind of celebrating and 
redefining what it means to be Canadian, I think. Yeah, and I appreciate the brown people in the movie. Go Indian people. <laughs> Shout out to Priya. Um, <laughs> so I have to let you go soon. But final question, I have to ask about boba tea. So uh, I've come across the fact that your go-to boba tea order is a fresh taro milk tea, correct? Yes. So I love taro as a flavor, but I mm -hmm. struggle to understand the appeal of fresh taro as a topping. So to finish <laughs> off, can you enlighten me on what makes fresh taro such a great boba tea topping oh it's so great because uh it's it's like you're it's a, it's like a dessert it's like you're it's like a solid and a liquid at the same time and it feels like you're drinking and eating uh a beverage um and some people don't like that texture that like mealy texture of fresh taro um in their in their drink but i love it I love the, uh, you know, like the, the ability to do multiple things when you're, when you're drinking a beverage, <laughs> it, feels like, it feels like a good deal. It's like a two in one thing. It's like you get a drink and you get a little snack. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, this is great. The movie is getting so much acclaim and very much deserves it. As I've been saying very cornly for the last 10 months, it's never not on my mind. Um, <laughs> Demi Shi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to Squibby today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And that was Demi Shi, the director of Turning Red, which I believe is out now, really. You can buy it, stream it. Never got released in cinemas, right? That was kind of the, the big sticky wicket. Yeah, lots of people upset because it wasn't released in cinemas, but... Um, Just sit closer to the screen, for Christ's sake. Yeah, headphones. Turn the volume on. fine. <laughs> people today. And you won't get coughed at or sneezed at. Yeah. Win-win. <laughs> well, we uh, we did it again. God damn it, Steve. We, we put the world to rights. We talked about everything under the sun. I guess we can tap out. Anything to plug? Oh, yes, I do, actually. Yeah, um, 24th of May, uh, Manchester Animation Festival will have the world premiere of The Old Man, The Movie, an absolutely insane Estonian stop-motion uh, feature film. Uh, imagine uh, Shaun the Sheep uh, meets Celebrity Deathmatch, and you're halfway there. That is, it's one of my favourite films of the last few years. Really? It was, it was the last film I saw before covid Ah, <laughs> I, I think maybe world premiere might be misstating it. Oh, did I say world? I meant UK, UK. The, the, the UK is the world, thanks to Brexit, you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's definitely the UK premiere, UK premiere, UK. That's fantastic, because, uh, yeah, I, uh, I've been wondering if that film was ever going to surface this side of the pond. Mm -hmm. So uh, I am envious of the folks that would get to go and see it again. <laughs> But it's so fucking funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. What are you plugging? Well, here's some fine and dandy news. If you like animation books, the second edition of my book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films, is coming out very soon. The street date, as the youth don't say, is April 11th, but you can pre-order it from reputable booksellers right now. The updated second edition features input and exclusive insight into the working processes of some of the industry's most noteworthy indie animation talents, including Signa Bauman, Adam Elliott, Don Hertzfeld, Kirsten Lepore, Robert Morgan, David O'Reilly, Pez, Bill Plimpton, Rosto, Chris Shepard, Joseph Wallace, Yost Laoma, and dozens more. 
some truly inspirational limpet there. It was a thrill to revisit and expand upon. Plus, if you order it directly from the publisher at routledge.com, you get free shipping. Who could ask for more? Just remember it's the one that says second edition on the cover. I mean, you might still be able to buy the first edition if you'd rather. Hell, buy them both. Compare and contrast. See which one smells better. That'd be just aces with me. Well, of course, you can follow us at Squiggly on Twitter. Uh, on Instagram, we're at Squiggly Animation. And Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine is where you find us on Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's where we uh, post up our one-to-one videos. And Animation Podcasts is the Squiggly Animation Podcast strands. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I think we're on pretty much all the proper ones. Or just listen on the site. Do what you want. We're not your mum. The website, of course, is squiggly.com or squiggly.co.uk, whatever's your preference. It's been fun. I've had a whale of a time. Mm-hmm. A Brendan Fraser whale of a time. Exactly. I've been Ben Mitchell. And I've been Steve Henderson. Until next time, everyone, happy anime. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.